Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. I hope everyone's having a wonderful day. This is Ray Penny. I'll be your host for today's uh, conversations on New, New Jersey education. Uh, this is school law edition. Um, we'll be talking about students' rights and privacy uh, with remote learning. Uh, before we get into that, if you want to ask a question, you can dial one three four seven. 989-8904 and just press the number one and Robin who's manning our switchboard uh, will get <coughs> your question and send it up to me and we'll put you on. Uh, the other thing is we have a chat room and if you want to go into the chat room you can log into the chat room uh, and type a question in there and I'll pass it on. With me today, as I said before, uh, it's on student rights and privacy, is Will Donio from the, the Cooper Levinson uh, Law Firm uh, in South Jersey. Welcome, Will. How are you? I am well, Ray. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, hold up in my house. Um, we're, you know, like everyone else, working remotely, which kind of gets us to our uh, our topic a little bit. Um, so before we get into it, uh, just tell us a little bit about your firm. Sure. I'm with Cooper Levinson, which is a regional law firm with headquarters in Atlantic City, and I chair the education law department uh, with my partners, uh, Amy Halk-Elko, Yolanda Melville, and uh, our associates, Casey Gifford and Elizabeth White, but we also work with other departments. We represent schools and school districts throughout the state, predominantly in the southern part of the state, um, as solicitor, which a lot of people wonder, what is a school board solicitor? Think of them as in-house counsel who doesn't actually work for the school, but does almost everything else for the school as far as their legal uh, work and requirements. We also act as assigned counsel to various insurance companies and joint insurance funds to handle litigation pretty much in every court in the state and federal system. And also then we act sometimes as special counsel. So we'll do investigations for districts. We'll do affirmative action uh, investigations and also provide a lot of training in servicing to um, schools, personnel, administrative personnel, uh, all sorts of, and all manners of staff training as well. Like I said, our offices are in, uh, our headquarters are in Lansing, but I am from Hamilton, Blueberry Capital of the World, where I have been working remotely too for almost a year. It's hard to believe. Uh, but, you know, if they keep telling me don't come in, I won't come in. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, but I do know you're working and, uh, you know, uh, Things changed pretty much overnight, but let's just go back before we get into some of the issues with remote learning, instruction, and students coming in remotely. What are some of the basic um, laws and regulations that governed students' uh, privacy? Sure. So predominantly, they're covered by New Jersey statute. Title 18A covers all of education law. New Jersey Administrative Code, that's Title 6 VI and 6A. Uh, those are regulations promulgated by the State Board of Education regarding uh, pupil rights and, and privacy, in particular with regards to records. And then finally, from a federal standpoint, the main law is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, often referred to as FERPA, uh, and a lot of people are familiar with that. I would say, Ray, that you know, both pre-pandemic and actually post-pandemic, the most important thing for school districts, I would say, are two words, notice and receipt. Notice. That is, notice to parents about, you know, what records are maintained, what records are required, what records uh, are kept in the centralized location, and a parent's right to review those and to take such action as they see fit with regards to those records. And then receipt, 
And that's a really more important, perhaps, component of that. Receipt that the parents have received this notice and that they understand the, you know, the rules and the framework with regards to their children's records. So that's predominantly what we're talking about. We talk about student privacy. We're talking about their records, their educational records, and what is an educational record. Um, and that definition is generally, you know, a, a little elastic insofar as it stretches over things that people might not think are records, but definitely covers those other types of records that we would normally think of, grades, attendance, things like that. Now, um, is a video a, a pupil record then? Uh, you know, I mean, because well, we're doing things, if they're, if they're particularly if they record it? So that's a great question, and you're going to get pretty much the classic attorney response, and most attorney responses are, it depends. So video mm -hmm. that's used in the education of a student and the determination of the educational services to provide it to the student, that may be a uh, student record. So, for example, pre-pandemic and also now with those schools that are still having in-person instruction, whether hybrid or fully in-person, um, security cameras throughout the school, right? They're everywhere. One of the most important things mm -hmm. to remember in our public life now is you are being recorded, okay? You are being recorded almost everywhere, predominantly by video, since audio recording is a little bit different insofar as it implicates certain provisions of New Jersey's wiretap act and what have you. But as far as video is concerned, there's video everywhere, and there's no prohibition on the videoing per se. It's a question as to um, what happens with that video. If it's used perhaps in a disciplinary setting, uh, you know, maybe there's a fight or there's an issue with regards to one student's behavior towards another, and you capture the video and you use it, then at that point that may become a student record. Uh, so I would suggest that in a classroom, if a student's performance or behavior is captured on video, even in a remote setting, and it's then used in an educational decision. I think I, I would use that in air quotations, an educational decision used by the school district and then memorialized and kept by the school district, then it becomes a record. Prior to that, it probably isn't. Hmm. So what about a video recording of them at their own home, uh, in, you know, in so, their kitchen or bedroom? or I mean, uh, what about that? So that's, that's where things, you know, especially that the, the remote learning and the hybrid learning has really brought to the forefront of discussion in the education law community. You know, what do we do with regards? First, as I said, notice and receipt are paramount and almost along these lines. So if a school district or uh, any public school issues a student with a laptop or any type of device, an iPad, uh, a Chromebook or anything along those lines that has um, the ability to record and collect information of the student's activity, the student's use of the device, has a camera or GPS or other feature capable of tracking the student. You have to provide the student and therefore their parent as well with written or electronic notification that the electronic device may record or collect that information, right? That's right in New Jersey statute. And that, if uh, you may recall, was in response to that very troubling case out of uh, in Pennsylvania and in the suburbs yep. of Philadelphia where, you know, students had school-issued laptops that were taking their picture not during school hours, but, you know, to kind of record whenever something was being used or the device was being used. And this law was passed specifically in response to it. So it provides also that um, you're not supposed to record anything 
which would violate the privacy rights of the student, individual residing within the student. So I would suggest clearly when this, the, the device is not being used for educational reasons, it shouldn't be recording anything. Um, mm -hmm. Also, you need to put a notice out, this, you know, that however that, you know, almost everything that is being done on that laptop, if it's issued by the school, if it's school property, you know, it can be monitored. Um, so one of the other components of that is you have to get a uh, receipt from the parents that they've received uh, this notice and, and notification, and you have to keep that notice for as long as the acknowledgement of that notice for as long as the student retains the device. So, you know, really this was taxing on school districts because, you know, right when everything shut down and everything shut down so quickly, you know, school districts were, you know, scrambling to issue devices, Chromebooks, laptops, what have you, iPads, to students, you know, and because we were going all virtual, if you recall, last March. heard, you know, it was very important to get this record keeping because, you know, these are very important fundamental privacy considerations. One of the things that we suggested to school districts is, you know, if you're going to have some type of remote learning, some type of um, kind of uh, teleconference via laptop or what have you, you know, that kind of meeting, whether, you know, it's Zoom or Google Meet or Microsoft Teams or WebEx or what have you, and there's all different um, applications that provide that type of service. But if you're going to do that, first, make sure that you have a clear understanding and provide notice of the information that those providers are collecting themselves. Um, people may not be aware that Zoom was accused and there were class actions, and I'm not making any statement as to the uh, validity of those, that, but Zoom was sued because it was collecting information and apparently selling it uh, when people were using it uh, for video conferencing. Um, <clears throat> so you need to make sure you know, you have checked out yourself which applications and what their privacy policy is. Then you need to kind of turnkey that to the parents and say, listen, this is what we're doing. In particular, like the GPS uh, component is very interesting because, you know, it helps you find the device, you know, heaven forbid a student loses it or it gets stolen. But in large measure, it could tell you, you know, all sorts of things. Did this student travel uh, over the holiday and did they use this device from a remote location and you're not actually residing in the district any longer, or they didn't reside in the district for a significant period of time, which would have warranted the obligation for them to self quarantine when they came back to New Jersey under the governor's uh, restrictions uh, with regards to travel and non-essential travel, uh, you know, that self quarantining, which is voluntary, but compliance is expected. So, you know, it raises all sorts of privacy concerns in that regard when you issue devices beyond just this is our device, beyond just, you know, if you break it, you're going to have to pay for it or something along those lines. There are a number of things that school districts should ensure. And, again, retain that acknowledgement because that's generally where these lawsuits are fought, not whether there was notice provided, not what, not, you know, not, not often – what was done, but whether notice was provided and whether you have evidence that the parents received that notice. Okay. So that's important. Actually, uh, I will reiterate, I think that's been important. Everything in the pandemic is the communication issue with the parents and, well, and the staff and students, but communication has been the key. 
on a lot of these areas. Um, does it matter if the students using their own device? Does that change well, anything? It makes some dis- it makes some distinctions, right? It's it's no longer a student. It's no longer a school issued device. So in that regard, you know, some of this, but it's still if it's using school issued uh, technology, right? You're dialing in and using the application that the school provides. It still should be subject to generally what are referred to as acceptable use policies, so that it won't be used for improper purposes. You know, nothing illegal or that has no place in a school setting. Um, you know, with regards to images and things along those lines. And it won't be used for improper purposes, violate copyright and other laws, things along those lines. So in that regard, it does change as far as the student's right to privacy with regards to whether it can be searched. I mean, you know, I I think, you know, school districts have to tread very carefully when students are using devices that are their own devices with regards to their privacy rights if they're alleged to have used them improperly. I mean, you know, that implicates, you know, search and seizure issues, um, due process issues. Um, the main component is if a student is on a, or is using the technology of the school district, there should be some notice that says, you know, all this traffic is monitored because that traffic's monitored for a number of reasons. It's monitored first mm-hmm. to ensure that, it, like I said, it's complying with the law. But it's also monitored, you know, emails and messages. They're monitored to ensure that we don't miss something in particular with regards to perhaps student self-harm when they search for things that, you know, might trigger the need for some type of intervention uh, when they, you know, search for things that might not be about self-harm but harm to others. If they are engaging in, you know, traffic which could be referred to or characterized as harassment, intimidation, or bullying, um, you know, and, and, and in that regard, it's important to, to notify somebody who's using a network or um, uh, other facility, let me use that term, that this, that this traffic is monitored, that, it, that you, know, you know, everything that you're doing on this network is subject to review um, because – you know, once you, again, once you provide notice, and oftentimes can get digital receipt to that, you know, somebody checks a box, okay, or something along those lines, and that will give you digital receipt. Uh, that's important for even if they're using their own devices. Hmm. And um, what about just seeing students seeing each other's classrooms or even a teacher or staff looking into someone's home? Is there any concerns with that? Sure. So, you know, one of the big issues we've had with these, remote learning uh, situations is what does the background of a student's from a video conference, what does that, you know, what does that implicate with regards to privacy concerns, both for the student sitting in front of the device, but also for the other students, if somebody besides the student is sitting there monitoring the device as well, parents, siblings, things along those lines. Uh, One of the things we've recommended in particular, if, if, if the technology will allow it, is try and create a universal background. That is, you know, the school mascot or something along those lines so that you're not peering into people's homes. You know, one of the things is, you know, it's been interesting, one of the things with these, these uh, the, the, with the new, uh, new normal, let's put it that way, the new normal of remote interactions, right? New normal remote interactions, whether it's meetings, whether it's depositions, whether it's 
conferences, the new normal is somebody sitting in front of a device, right? And you could have five people, 10 people, 100 people all sitting there. And in some situations, you can see everybody and everybody can see everybody else, right? So mm-hmm. the, backgrounds have, the backgrounds have become a new, a new thing, right? And it's, it's interesting, you know, you sometimes wonder, you know, who is staging their background? It's like, oh, let me put all these books I haven't read since, you know, freshman year of college literature and put them <laughs> in my background because they make me look like I'm smarter. You know, I haven't, I haven't picked up that book in, you know, 30 years, but let me put it in my background so, you know, I look good. Or does somebody inadvertently put something in their background that maybe they shouldn't or something sitting there? So one of the things we talked about on, uh, with our school districts, in particular for students, so that their backgrounds don't disclose things they want, don't want to disclose, their home life, their conditions, the conditions of their room, or something along those lines, is see if you can create a universal background that every student has to use so that no student, you know, it, 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 and, and we try and articulate it in a manner which I think parallels or, 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 or intersects with the uh, analog world, okay? So move out of the digital world, let's move to the analog world. If a student were in a classroom, who really controls that environment to ensure that it is focused and, you know, represents a healthy and safe learning environment? Well, that's the school, right? You come into a school mm-hmm. room, it's, it's, it's the teacher's classroom to decorate, to, to ensure. Try and think of the virtual world in the same way. Create a very safe, inviting, education-forward environment to the best that you can. And try and do so in the digital world, too. And you can do that with the, with the digital backdrops and things along those lines. That also then takes away the concern with peering into people's personal lives because you don't want mm-hmm. to have that occur. Yeah, and I, so I've had a teacher if, explain. I've had a teacher explain ahead, to me that they had a student who didn't want to be seen because of where they lived. So your solution of a virtual background, the same background, would allow that student to participate in the same way. They were just embarrassed. They lived in a one-bedroom apartment or something like that, and they didn't want their peers to know. So yeah, your solution kind of would and help that. Yeah, and, and, and it's not to – I don't want to come across as if I'm trying to stifle creativity with kids and their backgrounds and what have you. It's specifically to address the point you just made, that we want to try and make everything as education-focused as possible. And we know that it's, it's been hard enough on these kids over the last year. It's really been a struggle, and I applaud them for how well they've done, quite frankly. The kids have done very, very well, uh, all things considered. Yeah, they're struggling, and a lot of kids are – need help, and there's a lot of services that school districts need to provide. But all in all, the kids, you know, this is not ideal, and we want them back in school, and we want them back in a building with a teacher in front of them. Absolutely. That's the goal. That's the goal of every school district I know of and every school district uh, I've worked with and what have you. That's the goal. But until we can get to that point, we got to provide them with the best safe learning environment that we can. And for a student to be uh, worried about what might be transmitted in that digital classroom about their home life or what have you, that doesn't foster good learning. That doesn't foster a safe place for that student to learn, and that's what we need to foster. So you know, that's one of the things we talked about, that digital backdrop. And in addition, it also prevents students from, you know, sometimes students, whether well-intended or not well-intended, will 
want to have backdrops that demonstrate all sorts of interests that they may have, good learning environments. So we want to, you know, kind of remove that issue as well. So, you know, things that might be um, problematic, you know, whether it's, you know, advocating, you know, all sorts of other things that are not appropriate to be within a classroom, you know, alcohol, drugs, things along those lines or something along that, you know, just, just take that opportunity for mischief away as well. Can you, can the school district make that a policy for the, the students that they have to have an appropriate backdrop and nothing kind of like you can't wear certain shirts with certain slogans that are vulgar or something to that uh, effect? Right. Yeah, I think, and I think that that would be, that would be the type of, uh, like I said, translate the analog to the digital world type of approach that I would recommend to a school district. First and foremost, if you can create one and you require everyone to use one, then I think it's okay because you're not, you're not stifling speech. You're not doing anything along those lines. It's your classroom as a school district. Just as a student would have the right to say, well, I want to put this on the bulletin board this, this day, Mr. Penny, because, you know, it's like, no, but that's a very important word, but semicolon, but comma, but if you are going to allow students to do so, make sure that you are not engaging in any type of viewpoint discrimination. That is, if somebody puts up, you're allowing certain political speech, and a lot of times a backdrop would probably be considered passive political speech um, because it's just something that's like some, something somebody's wearing maybe. Uh, if you're going to allow that to occur, you've got to be very careful about viewpoint neutrality. That is, if you are creating a, you know, kind of a limited open forum where students can engage in certain types of passive political speech, you know, once you let in some speech, you've got to be careful of all the speech. So you know, that's very important to remember as well. So uh, just on that freedom of speech, so we just went through an election that people had political ad banners behind them. Once you start allowing that, I guess you almost are kind of – it's a tough thing. But uh, I guess yeah, but do you have it, to it, allow it, it their is. freedom of speech in that? Well, see, here's the thing. I don't think you'd have to in the backdrop to the classroom, all right? And that's because, again, taking the analog to the digital – the backdrop to the classroom has never been a limited open forum for a student, and it has students to ha have never had the right to, you know, display even passive political speech in a classroom on the walls or things along those lines. Now, that doesn't apply to what they're wearing. Always recognize that what they're wearing. In fact, Tinker v. Des Moines, if you recall, is the, it's the seminal case with regards to First Amendment rights for students in school, you know, uh, it can hardly be argued that students or teachers shed their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. That's where that comes from. In Tinker v. Des Moines, the students who were ultimately had their First Amendment rights upheld, though they were violated by the school district, uh, but the Supreme Court said and said that they were violated. What were they wearing? They were wearing armbands. Okay. So and the and the the Supreme Court made you know specific note of that that this was passive political speech. Um, so what the student's wearing, unless you have a dress code and, or a school uniform policy or something along those lines that you can show there's a violation of and it's viewpoint neutral and what have you, and yeah, you can enforce that, I'm sure, in the digital world as well. But when we talk about the backdrop, I think that's a little different, unless you are allowing students to, to demonstrate any backdrop that they have, in which case then you better be very careful. And these are, these are questions board members and administrators are, are well advised to get 
information from their attorneys first before they engage in any type of drastic action or anything along those lines. Now, I have heard uh, school districts, and it's kind of in this line, I just want to reiterate this. They have like a code of conduct. You don't go to class uh, virtually. I mean, you don't go to the class virtually in your pajamas uh, or shirtless or something to that. They can have a, a kind of like a code of conduct, not just for the, te- uh, the students, but also for the staff, that they want to have everyone like they're in the classroom. Is, is that okay? Or, I mean, I, or is it you have to be a yeah. little tricky on that? No, I think I think you can have a good netiquette, so to speak, policy mm-hmm. that says that. And and the way I think the the all school districts, I believe, would be uh, in good standing to say you should treat the virtual classroom as if you were actually in the physical building, and for students and staff. So the code mm-hmm. of conduct with regards to language, code of conduct with regards to behavior, code of conduct with regards to dress and grooming, all the same. Okay, if they, you know. If the article of clothing would be improper to wear to school, I think you can enforce it in the digital world as well. The interesting thing is, I mean, how much of that are you going to see? You know, um, I don't think it would surprise anyone that oftentimes, you know, if I'm at a meeting or something, I may have a shirt and tie on, but I might have shorts on too underneath, you know, because you're only going to see the shirt and tie. But as long as everything that's visible complies with the policy and all behavior complies with the policy that you normally would – have in in the physical building, then yeah, I think a school district can enforce that as well, like a good netiquette, good school conduct kind of policy. And what about the communication between? I was going switching gears a little bit because you you said something before, but um, between like the teachers and the and the students, there's a lot more email communication now between this between mm-hmm. uh, the the parties. Uh, in fact, I think the, I've heard teachers say that they're spending so much more time doing this. Do they have to save that communication for a certain amount of time to teachers or the school district? Uh, and well, that, but that, school, if it's individual, I guess that's a student record or could be, I guess. Well, it depends. If it, it, it depends. Again, if it was used – emails are generally not student records. Be very clear. They're generally okay. not student records, emails. Um, I got I, – I, can't think of a situation generally where an email would have been used in a educational decision, maybe in a disciplinary proceeding, maybe if it, the email was used as part of the submission of an assignment, but just an email communication back and forth is probably not a pupil record. That being said, there is a specific law in New Jersey in regards to electronic communications, and that's a communication, communication transmitted by means of an electronic device including a telephone, cellular phone, computer, computer network, uh, personal data system, or pager. Okay, now that's interesting. I mean, who uses pagers anymore? That shows you how, these, how old these laws are. But <laughs> every school district has to have a policy, and every school district, I'm quite confident, does have a policy with regards to electronic communications. One of the most important components of electronic communication is, you know, in particular what we advise staff is, you know, you should treat it with the with the formality that it is a written record that probably will exist for forever. Because even if you delete it, there's probably somewhere where it can be uh, can be uh, found. Uh, and and you know, one of the things we tell staff all the time is, you know, don't write anything in particular to a student clearly, but to really anybody, parent, fellow staff member, don't write anything that you wouldn't be comfortable having read back at a public board of education meeting 
where your mother was present. Okay. I mean, that's, that's though, if you hit those, you're going to be okay. Um, but otherwise, you know, electronic communications and, and there's also policies with regards to staff and student social networking, which is generally no, it's students and mm-hmm. staff should not be engaged in the same type of social network unless the social network is specifically dedicated to the educational process and there's an administrator involved or something along those lines. But otherwise, you know, they should not be friends. Um, as we tell staff all the time, uh, they should be friendly to students, but they're not their friends and they shouldn't be their social media friends. They should not be mm-hmm. you know, following each other. Um, now in certain situations, certain social media platforms maybe can be used to provide, you know, one directional information, by the way, practice is canceled. By the way, you know, X, Y, Z. But generally, no, they should be using specifically dedicated school-issued email addresses that are then able to uh, be retrieved and evaluated in case anyone makes an allegation of any type of inappropriate uh, behavior or, you know, malicious uh, communication. So in that regard, yeah, emails are much more common, you know, emails and questions and things along those lines. And, you know, it used to be we would suggest that students and staff shouldn't email. And, and to a certain extent, that should be, things should go out to generally the entire class. And, you know, individual emails, they can be problematic, but I can't say that they're not going to happen in the digital world because, you know, that's the world we live in. But Frankly, a lot of that should occur in a virtual classroom. Students should be encouraged to be able to participate as much as possible in that virtual classroom, again, with the idea of trying to make the analog into the digital, to try and pull in as much of that collaboration and, and, and learning environment as possible in the virtual world. That's, you know, that's, that's the real hurdle in the virtual world is to try and create that type of learning environment, collaborative learning environment where kids not only learn from the teacher, but they learn from each other. That's, that's a big part of the classroom. And, and that doesn't create pupil records, right? So there's a, there's a case, um, a very famous case uh, interpreting kind of what is a pupil record under FERPA, a Swaso uh, versus Faldo. And in that case, the Supreme court was, uh, tasked with the evaluation of whether what they refer to as I'm using air quotations here, peer grading was a pupil record or, or violated FERPA, which prohibits the dissemination of a pupil record, except in very limited circumstances uh, without parental consent. And there the students were trading the papers. You know, remember doing that? You know, like, okay, mm-hmm. you just finish the quiz, reach across the desk, you know, trade your paper with the person next to you, and we're going to go over the answers. Okay. They were doing that, and a parent said, you know, my child is very embarrassed uh, and, and, and does not like doing that because they don't want somebody else to see how they did quiz or test or what have you. And that is an educational record. It's their assignment, and um, that violates my rights under FERPA. Uh, and they sued. Now, at the same time, the court, Supreme Court was tasked with the uh, – in a case that they decided later, the determination whether you could sue under FERPA, what's called a private cause of action under, to enforce the rights under 
Section 1983 of Title 42, which is generally the title you use to sue in federal court to enforce civil rights. Ultimately, mm-hmm. the court came to the conclusion you could, you can't. Under FERPA, you can't sue a school district for violating your rights. Uh, well, all you can do is seek uh, enforcement through the Department of Education who can make a determination as to whether there should be the withholding of federal aid for a violation. That's, that's really the enforcement mechanism. But nonetheless, they hadn't decided that at the time that this case came up, the peer grading, and the parent sued. And it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. The district one at the district court level, that is the trial level of the federal system, then I think it went to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, if I recall correctly, and they said, no, this was a violation of FERPA because the student's performance in this peer-graded test was disclosed to, was disclosed to another student. And then went up to the Supreme Court, and then the unanimous decision said, no, that's, that's not what FERPA is about. Peer grading in and of itself does not violate FERPA. And in addition, there's a specific kind of uh, term of art with regards to pupil record, that is, those are things maintained by an educational entity and that are used as part of the educational uh, decision-making or educational services provided. So in that regard, you know, that collaborative idea of things that you might be working on in a virtual classroom, if we take the analog to the digital, you know, how students do, what their, you know, their answers are, what have you, that in and of itself is not going to implicate privacy rights or FERPA rights. Um, that being said, you know, well, you know, a classroom is not a, it's not a private space. It's, it is, however, a non-public space. And so one of the things that we have been recommending to school districts is to put parents on notice that we, we, we ask them to try and treat that classroom as much of a classroom as they can. We understand very much so how difficult that is, especially at the lower grades where the children might need assistance from their parents or other caregivers to stay focused and stay on task in that digital classroom. Um, But we do suggest, and again, notice and receipt. Notice to the parents that we expect this to be treated as a classroom and that, you know, uh, receipt from the parents that they understand what our expectations are with regards to, you know, not recording, with regards to not, you know, observing or, or trying to take pictures or snapshots of other students, of, you know, going through the appropriate channels if there's got a question to the teacher or things along those lines. You know, just because um, you might be able to immediately shout out a question you have to the teacher because you walked in on your child's classroom doesn't mean that's how you should do that. Um, mm-hmm. And it certainly doesn't mean you should, you know, if you have any displeasure, you know, immediately go report on social media. Go through the chain of command. Go to the teacher. Try and resolve it. If you can at the teacher level, you know, then there's a whole level of administration from assistant principal to principal to counselors to assistant superintendent to superintendent to try and resolve those. But, again, notice and receipt that we anticipate and expect the digital classroom to be considered as much as possible like an analog classroom. All right. We're coming towards the end, uh, and we focus on the notice and receipt. Is there anything else? Because you talked about staff training before. Uh, anything else that w- might be a good practice uh, in terms of staff training or something to limit liability for districts that you would recommend? Well, first and foremost, staff training. And staff training also goes with notice and receipt, okay? All staff, you need to have this training. 
and all staff, we need to have a record of the training you've received with regards to digital privacy and the, and the, the responsibilities that we have with regards to devices and things along those lines. One of the most, one of the, perhaps, and I don't mean this in a glib way, it comes across a little glib, but I don't mean it. One of the most important things you can ever take away from a training is the sign-in sheet to ensure and show that all your staff has been trained. And, you know, in a virtual world, that's a little more difficult, but you can still have a digital box check, and I've attended, and I've done this. Um, you know, as lawyers, we have had continuing legal education responsibilities for forever. And um, one of the things we see now in the digital world is during these what we call CLEs is, you know, every hour at a, a certain time, a code is announced to show, you know, you have to fill it in and then you have to fill it into the, uh, uh, your receipt that shows that you actually attended this training. Because here's where the, the, this comes into play. When a school district gets sued, and in particular, we're seeing much more suits hit, and it's very important to understand that harassment, intimidation, bullying applies with as much rigor and zealousness in a virtual classroom as it does in, in a traditional classroom. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, those types of uh, inappropriate comments, gestures, communications, those types of things, they are still things that school districts need to be aware of. And if they're happening in a digital classroom and, you know, a student doesn't want to come to class or something like that, that is a disruption to the educational environment. So those types of HIB reporting and, and things, they, they apply, like I said, with as much rigor as they do in a, in a traditional classroom. And part of training, part of HIB, when school districts get sued, and you can get sued under New Jersey's law against discrimination for alleged violation of the Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights, which is often referred to as a HIB, a harassment, intimidation, and bullying incident, one of the places that attorneys go to who are representing students and parents is they go directly to how well-trained is your staff. And they don't want to just see that, yes, you have a policy. They want to see that you've reviewed your policy, that you have – that it's been reviewed by somebody qualified to review it with them, and that that staff member was actually in attendance when that occurred and received those materials. And now we see they're actually asking to see the materials that those staff members received to ensure that they're in compliance with all the elements of, of appropriate training. So notice and receipt is really, the, I think, the operative terms for – limiting your liability. Was somebody on notice and you have receipt that they acknowledge that they were on notice, whether it be as far as good digital citizenship, virtual classrooms, FERPA rights, rights with regards to a device, or with regards to staff. Have they been adequately trained and, you know, understand on notice as to what their responsibilities are as far as reporting of harassment, intimidation, bullying, or other you know, affirmative action responsibilities. Well, it's, uh, we've come to a close of this program, and if, no, if you've got nothing else out of it, notice and receipt, uh, and, and that's probably – it's important not just in the digital remote setting. It's, it's always been important, but uh, if you want to keep yourself uh, legally safe, uh, make sure your students, parents, and staff uh, have been noticed and you have a re- receipt of that. Is that yep. correct? Yes, and, and it, that also comes along with what we've called our rules to live by, and the number one rule is if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. The contemporaneous written record of something and receipt of that acknowledgement, they're, they're really important uh, when, when there are claims that somehow a school district did not 
fulfill its responsibilities towards any student. Okay, and so I'd like to that brings us to the end of this. I'd like to thank Will Donio from Cooper and Levinson for uh, his uh, views and uh, his presentation on this. I always enjoy my conversations with Will. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ray. And I hope everyone enjoyed that, and I hope to see you at our next podcast. Not see you. I hope that you listen to our next podcast, and have a good afternoon.